What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Keto Savage Podcast. Uh, I've got special guest, Dr. John Lemansky on the line today, and he's uh, the ketogenic doctor. So we're going to have all kinds of uh, interesting topics to cover. We're going to go into the weeds a little bit here. So um, sit back, tune in, and relax, and uh, learn a thing or two. So without further ado... How are you, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just kind of give us a, a little bit of a background here, like what got you into keto and, and what are you doing now with it? Yeah, great question. Um, so I've been doing keto for probably around 12, 13 years uh, myself. Um, I got into it um, basically to try to heal myself. I uh, was previously more of a vegetarian, vegan kind of person. Not for ethical reasons, but just because I thought it was a healthier way to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was in medical school, I actually did quite a bit of lab work on myself, um, basically to qualify for cheaper insurance. So, um, but out of that, I found out that I was pre-diabetic. I was starting to become insulin resistant, um, which was a shocker to me because I was working out six days a week. I was like, you know, ten percent body fat. So on the outside, you know, I looked fine, but internally I was actually quite metabolically damaged. So I started doing a lot of research um, on different kind of methodologies to improve health and um, came across a couple of really good books um, on keto, started reading about it and um, doing some research. I think one of the benefits of being an MD is that I can understand kind of the uh, biochemical breakdown of things. But um, in medical school and residency and practice, we don't actually learn much from a nutritional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really took me a couple of years of in-depth reading on the subject uh, to transform what I do for myself. And since then, um, I started helping people in the same fashion um, because I think a lot of people are tired of feeling poor all the time. You know, it's not – I look at keto – not so much for weight loss, but more how to improve your health, how to feel better, how to improve your cognition, and then for athletics, like how to improve your performance. Um, so I did that, um, and then in my medical career, I worked in a hospital setting as a hospital doctor or hospitalist um, in Mississippi, and uh, figured out that the majority of what I was seeing in the hospital was really tied to what you and I are talking about and preaching, which is, you know, diet and, and exercise. Right. The problem though is that, you know, if you see your regular doctor, they're going to tell you diet and exercise. And that's about the uh, limit of what they're going to say. And part of that has to do with, you know, they're so busy, but also part of it has to do with as a society, I think we look for a quick fix, kind of take this pill, go away um, versus, Hey, you really need to address the root cause of what's going on. Um, and so as I've been doing, uh, that on, um, kind of with my clients, I've noticed a dramatic improvement in their health. And so now I just basically do, um, virtual client health around the country. Yeah. It's, uh, I just checked out your website and it's so cool that, you know, coming from the medical field that you're in, that you're promoting, you know, health and wellness through, through nutrition over, you know, the quick fix of a medical pill, which is, uh, definitely the direction we need to trend as a society, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, so, you know, don't get me wrong. I think the medical establishment community is fantastic. 
um, after the fact. So if you get a heart attack, you definitely want to be in the United States. We will treat you, you know, exceptionally well. You go to the hospital, best cardiologist, best cardiovascular surgeons, you know, you get into a wreck and you have severe trauma. You want to be in the United States because we are top, top when it comes to those kind of modalities. But we rank um, towards the bottom of industrialized nations in terms of health, you know, and there has to be a reason for that as one of the most profitable um, societies in the world. Why are we not number one? Mm. Right? Why is that? And I don't think enough people are asking that question. Instead, we just continue down the same path of low fat, um, refined or, you know, complex carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates are the way to go. And the reality is that all the studies that you look at, all the statistics that you look at show that that is not healing our population. It's actually making us much sicker. Um, and so as a physician, you know, our, our ultimate goal, and I think the majority of physicians or nurse practitioner or healthcare professionals all go into it to really help people. I, I firmly believe that. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we really helping people um, after the fact? Or could we be of more service before by really preventing um, everything that we see in the medical field? And I, I think you and I would be in agreement that whether your focus is on exercise performance, weightlifting, powerlifting, or reversing metabolic diseases, the ketogenic lifestyle is a great base to, to start with. Yeah, you know? I completely agree. Um, well, I've, I've got like a long list of questions, but I'm going to hinge off of what you've said thus far. How, in, I mean, in your opinion, what, what, what needs to happen for the medical industry to kind of take more of a, a proactive approach to nutrition as opposed to after the fact, um, you know, cures with uh, medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know if I have the answer to it, but I think... Because um, I know so much of it. I mean, I, my mo my mom's in the medical field, and I don't know, like, I don't really have a pulse on it as much. Um, sure. But, I mean, there's a lot of business with medicine, you know, large hospitals, big pharma. Like, is right. it uh, more of a monetary perspective that needs to change, or, or what, I mean, big picture, what, what needs to be the, the underlying shift in thinking, I guess? Sure. So big picture, I think the big societies like the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association have to change their guidelines to reflect what the information really shows. We need more research looking specifically at nutrition as the, um, uh, as the, the source of um, our treatment versus uh, pills. Um, we need to educate healthcare workers at the benefit of real nutrition versus just kind of, you know, this idea of just, you need to change your diet, but nobody really knows what that means. I think, um, because it is a big business, any real change that you're going to get is going to be from a kind of grass root movement, which is why I really enjoy speaking to you, speaking to other um, podcasters like Jimmy Moore and um, going to conferences because that's where you see the real power of the masses, you know, mm -hmm. and, and what I said at KetoCon was if you go to your primary care doctor and you say, Hey, I want to lose weight. What am I supposed to do? The response you're going to get is, well, just, you know, restrict your calories and exercise. Okay. 
Well, that doesn't work. Now, if you go to that same doctor and you say, look, I'm going to do a ketogenic diet. This is what it entails. This is what the research shows. Chances are your doctor is probably going to look at that and be like, huh, okay, that makes sense. Go ahead and try it. Let's see what happens. So I think if we can educate more people, which I, I really enjoy social media for that because it's getting the information out there and have those people go to their primary care doctors and more and more prim primary care doctors are going to realize, okay, there is some benefit because I've been telling my patient for the last five years to, you know, do all these things and they're just getting sicker. Now, you know, they come to me with a ketogenic plan and they lose weight. Their metabolic picture gets better. They feel better. They're off of their medications or they're titrating off of them. That's very powerful. I mean, that's, that's really what we're trying to accomplish, right? So I don't care how you get to the end point as long as the end point is improved health. If that's ketogenic, if that's paleo, if that's primal, whatever it is, I think it's going to benefit not only society but that individual. Right. Um, you know, and I think part of the issue too is that um, it's going to take a long time. I mean, it's going to take, I think, from a uh, big picture standpoint, probably close to 50 years to really change the perception of uh, fat being dangerous. Um, and so I think the more that we get information out there, the more research we do, the more studies that are published, um, the more we can influence the big societies to say, you know what, we need to change our um, perception of fat and we need to really start promoting nutrition, real nutrition as the one of the major uh, modalities for improving health. I agree. I agree. One, one of the big pushbacks that I always get is um, like the ketogenic diet from a, a longevity standpoint, uh, you know, for many, many years down the road, because all of my biomarkers have improved since keto, but there's not a whole lot of data research that I've found that has, you know, a human study done for you know, a lifetime following the ketogenic protocol. And I think, you know, the more of that that comes out, it's going to be, um, you know, profound information for the, the medical industry. But what would you say to someone that's kind of giving pushback with regards to it being a healthy diet for a lifetime? Yeah, great question. Um, so you're right. So most of this like long-term studies are going to be done with uh, rice or excuse me, rat or mice. Um, there are a few studies out there that are looking at um, not specifically keto, but more of uh, saturated fat intake. Uh, some of the more famous ones are going to be the Women's Health Initiative, which is one of the biggest studies that's ever been done, which showed that you have actually increased morbidity and mortality when you're on a low-fat uh, kind of diet. You know, you can extrapolate from that that, okay, well, if low-fat is going to make you sicker and die earlier, then a higher-fat diet is going to be more beneficial. I think um, a couple things. So number one, the cost of doing research has gone down. There's a lot of uh, physicians that are starting to really push the envelope in terms of um, using a ketogenic lifestyle and, and doing research with it. Probably one of the more um, kind of uh, famous one is Dr. Siegfried, who's looking at cancer research and um, the ketogenic lifestyle. And he's showing quite a bit of benefit from doing it. Um, so I think you can start to extrapolate from some of those studies of the long-term benefit in terms of longevity. One of the or two things that I really believe um, 
enhance not only a ketogenic lifestyle, but your longevity are intermittent fasting, um, which is a very powerful tool, um, which I don't think enough people really um, talk about, but it's starting to gain momentum. And then the use of micronutrients and healing your mitochondria. Um, and that all plays into the same kind of idea of, you know, if you improve your mitochondria, you do intermittent fasting, so you're improving your, um, or you're reducing mTOR, um, reducing the, um, you know, cellular damage. And also, if you do it long-term fasting, you increase your um, immune system turnover, so you're having a healthier immune system. So you can start to extrapolate from all these different studies at the benefit of longevity. There is still not enough data out there to say, look, you know, this is going to uh, improve your lifespan by 10 years or 20 years. Um, but I think as more research is being done now, in 20, 30, 40 years from now, we'll see, we'll look back and say, okay, now we have the evidence that shows that a ketogenic lifestyle is really beneficial in terms of longevity. So I think we're getting there. I think you and I uh, inherently know it's improving our longevity just by the way we feel and look. Um, and then the research, unfortunately, is usually delayed, but it'll catch up to us. And at that point, we can say, hey, I told you so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I think so many people, they, they don't take into account how they actually feel, and they're just so you know stuck on what little data is out there. But I mean, if all of my biomarkers have improved and I feel and perform better than I ever have, then I think I would be very careless to, you know, not capitalize on that. And I mean, if, if I wound up dying 10 years early, which I'm very doubtful, but if, if the quality of my life from now until that point is so much more enhanced, I mean, that's, that's a worthwhile 10 years in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not so, so I, I can't remember who actually said this, but I was listening to uh, another podcast and, you know, basically the, the speaker was saying, you know, it's one thing to live 10 years longer. It's another thing to live 10 years longer feeling horribly, right? So it's not just longevity that we want to improve, but it's actually also how you feel during that time, right? And I think you and I see the benefits of, of it and anybody who's really been through a ketogenic lifestyle for longer than just a quick weight loss uh, phase can see the benefits. You sleep better, you feel better, you know, you're not as sick. I mean, I can tell you for myself, and I'll probably get sick after this, but you know, I get sick maybe once every six years. Yeah. And um, on top of it, it's not like I'm in a isolated bubble. I mean, for um, 10 years or so, I was in the hospital setting where I was exposed to so many bacteria, so many viruses, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria, um, something called C. diff, which is very, very difficult to get rid of. And I wouldn't get sick. And the question is, why is that? Well, my immune system is extremely strong based on what I'm doing from a nutritional standpoint. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, you'll live not only, I, I believe you'll live longer, but you also will live longer in a much healthier fashion. I completely agree. I mean, I could, I'm going to be 120 and look better then than I do now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that you had been keto for about 12 to 13 years. Is that like strict keto, I'm assuming? So yes and no. I mean, initially it was um, like everybody else. You have to kind of do a trial and error. Um, it has adapted and evolved quite a bit since then. Um, I now do uh, variations on keto depending on what I'm trying to accomplish. So 
Um, as I mentioned before, I, I do have quite a few clients that I work with. A lot of them are like tech entrepreneurs or CEOs. And so I'm going to advise them to do certain things like intermittent fasting or short-term fast um, or cyclic ketosis. And before I recommend doing that, I do it myself just to make sure that I know what it's going to feel like. I don't want to tell somebody, hey, you got to do a five-day fast um, and not know what it's going to feel like. I want to be able to reassure them that at this point in the fast, this is how you're going to feel. That's normal. Right. Um, so in general, uh, right now I'm training for a triathlon. So I will do pretty strict keto for six days out of the week. And then on the seventh day, I'll um, kind of liberalize my carbohydrate intake. But when I say that, it's going to be you know, real carbohydrates like green vegetables, cauliflower, um, things that are going to actually promote mitochondria health. Um, I get a lot of micronutrients from supplementation um, because part of the issue also is even if you go ketogenic, it's not so straightforward that you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to McDonald's or In-N-Out or any other fast food restaurant. I'm going to take the bun off and now I'm keto. Not necessarily. You have to also focus on the quality of the ingredients that you're consuming. I completely Very, agree. Yeah, and, and I see a lot of people do that where they're you know, going to whatever fast food restaurant saying that they're keto and then stalling out. Well, the reason you're stalling out is because you're not actually getting the micronutrients that you need, so your, your mitochondria is still sending out signals saying, hey, I am uh, cellularly depleted, so you need to feed me more. And it's this concept of, you know, I'm nutritionally depleted at a cellular level, yet I am consuming a ton of calories, so outwardly I'm still metabolically sick, I'm still gaining weight. Mm -hmm. If you start focusing on the micronutrients and combine that with a ketogenic lifestyle, that's extremely powerful. Not only do you, you know, improve your health at a cellular level, but you also then lose weight as a side effect or consequence of that. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's depending on what I'm trying to accomplish, um, I'll vary things, but the basis of what I do is a ketogenic lifestyle for sure. So when you uh, are more liberal with those, those carbs, for instance, and you're having more of those green leafy vegetables, what would your total uh, carb intake on a day like that be? Yeah, great question. So uh, a couple things. Number one, I will uh, time it. So timing of carbohydrate intake is very important. Um, what I'll, what I mean by that is usually on the seventh day, I'm doing a pretty long or pretty intensive workout to the point of like two hours, let's say. So after a workout like that, where it's mostly anaerobic um, or pretty good powerlifting session, obviously not powerlifting like you do, but for an old man like myself, it's <laughs> pretty powerful. Um, at that point, that's when I'll liberalize the carbohydrate. And it'll be up to like, you know, at some point, 75 to 100 grams. So because I've been doing keto for so long, I am fat adapted. And people have to understand that when you transition to a ketogenic lifestyle, it takes about two weeks just to get your body to start producing the ketones. Unless you, let's say, fast. If you fast for 48 hours, you're going to start making ketones. But most people are not going to go that extreme. Then it takes another two weeks or so to really get fat adapted, meaning that your body actually can utilize those ketones as energy primarily because you have to upregulate receptors 
and you have to kind of prime your body to start using ketones as, as a fuel source. Once you've done that, um, then you're fat adapted. And if you liberalize your carbohydrate intake, as long as they're good carbohydrates, you don't get kicked out of ketosis. So what happens is you consume those carbohydrates, your body breaks them down to glucose. You use those glucose because post exercise, your body needs, you know, that refuel. So your muscles, your GLUT4 receptors are activated, upregulated, and you really are driving the glucose into the cells. Um, so you don't get kicked out of ketosis. You might just for like a short period of time, but as soon as your body utilizes that and you stop eating and, and your body will go straight back into ketosis. So, um, I think it's extremely powerful, the timing and, um, the types of carbohydrates. Now let's say same thing, two hour workout. I feel virtuous. I'm going to go eat like an energy drink or a bar that's mostly, you know, uh, packaged, which I don't know what the chemicals are in it. That's different. That's going to cause an immune response. It's going to cause an inflammatory response. You're not going to get back into ketosis as quickly. So it's important that you understand, um, the type of carbohydrates that you're consuming. So when you're, when you're having this, this, um, taxing powerlifting workout, you're having, um, pretty much 175 to 100 grams of, of pure fibrous carb. I mean, you're going to get some trace right. sugars carb, but it's mostly like a like a cauliflower, like kale or something like that. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to be quite uh, fibrous, so you really don't absorb as much of the carbohydrates to begin with. You're also benefiting, benefiting your microbiome by giving them the types of fibrous carbohydrates that they, they like. You're, you're benefiting your muscle recovery and your mitochondrial recovery because you're getting the micronutrients like psyllium, magnesium, uh, zinc. If you don't have those micronutrients, which you're, you generally will not get from eating uh, fast food or processed food, your cells don't work properly. So every enzyme in your body needs those micronutrients to function properly. If you don't have it, then you're not really maximizing your uh, energy production. And that's what really what we want. We want your muscles to have increased mitochondria density, and we want those mitochondria to be functioning at their optimum. And in order to do that, you really need to feed them the kind of their own fuel source that they need. Um, and you get that either from supplementation or you can get also get it from, you know, complex, complex carbohydrates. Now I know, uh, you know, within the the keto community, there's several different sub niches. One of which being the the carnivore keto, mm-hmm. which I mean, you get a lot of micronutrients from you know quality meat sources, especially if you, you know, consume the meat drippings and stuff that you cook off. Mm-hmm. What would you say? I mean, compare and contrast. You know, carnivore keto versus like having these uh, def- leafy greens and stuff. Like, do you think um, carnivore keto is going to provide the body with all the micronutrients it needs, or are there going to be some deficiencies? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's um, kind of a difficult question to answer. Pretty controversial um, topic right now. It is. And and so what I would say is um, a couple things. So you will get benefit from it in terms of decreased insulin production to a certain extent. You know, if all you're eating is protein – with, I guess, some fat based on the way the, the types of meat that you're consuming, 
um, at some point you're going to have too much protein intake just based on what you're consuming. Um, and that excess protein is going to be converted by gluconeogenesis into fat. So theoretically, if you overdo it, and this is kind of what happens with like an Atkins diet, where it's predominantly uh, protein-based, you will inevitably lose weight initially, but at some point you will likely plateau because you're consuming too much protein. So in terms of micronutrients, again, it depends on the quality of the product that you're consuming. The other thing that I, I do caution people about with just doing protein intake is that part of what you're trying to accomplish with changing your nutrition is by decreasing mTOR production. And mTOR is basically part of your system. Um, it's a way for your body to basically um, fight off um, cancer. So it's one of the most powerful um, tools that we have. Excess protein intake can actually increase mTOR production. And so you may get some negative consequences of that. Um, so I think, like you said, it's a very controversial topic. I don't think there's enough research out there. I know a couple of people that you and I know are doing it. Um, and obviously, they're not having negative consequences from it, as far as I know. But I would just be careful in terms of long longevity, like we talked about, mTOR production. Um, they might get some negative effects on that. And um, I always recommend, you know, once you're keto adapted, that you really um, increase your carbohydrate intake from a very healthy carbohydrate intake. Um, you also, you know, if you have too much protein intake, you can definitely get in, increased insulin production um, and also decrease growth hormone production. Um, so there might be some negative uh, side effects from it. So it's just something to think about. That would definitely be an individual basis, I would assume. But is there like a threshold, like a general principle as far as at what point are you consuming so much protein that's going to inhibit uh, growth hormone? Yeah, and that's um, there's no good answer for that. It's definitely individualized. I would say that you know somebody like you or uh, Danny Vega who have quite a bit of muscle mass, uh, your protein um, kind of threshold is going to be higher than somebody like me who's more lean, like you know functional um, endurance athletics. Um, so there's no real like good cutoff. I would say mm -hmm. <clears throat> you can do kind of uh, adjunct measurements by looking at your ketone production and also your glucose levels. So kind of what I talked about at KetoCon, you could theoretically do a two-hour postprandial glucose test after consuming, you know, steak or whatever um, you're consuming and see what is my glucose level doing? Is it elevated? Is it excessively elevated? And that will give you an idea that it's probably too much protein intake at that point which is being converted into glucose and eventually fat. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, to, to kind of touch on what you were saying with mTOR, what, uh, I mean, like for me being a bodybuilder, my, my primary goal is hypertrophy, muscle growth, um, which benefits from increased mTOR. And then from a, you know, you know, longevity standpoint, you want to decrease mTOR. So what, right. what is the, the balancing act there? Yeah, again, I think it's individualized. Um, I think it's a fallacy to think that even if you're um, trying to have hypertrophy, it's a fallacy to think that you need um, significantly elevated amounts of protein intake. 
you do need amino acids, right? But you can get that from kind of a amino acid compa- compound if you wanted to. Um, I generally will say, you know, for most people, if you're not trying to get hypertrophy, I would say you should consume about half a gram per kilogram of body weight per day. So average person, let's say they weigh 100 um, kilograms, and I know we're in the United States and we don't deal with kilograms, but uh, most of the research is done in those terms, then I would say you probably need about 50 grams of um, protein per day. Mm-hmm. Somebody like you, I would probably go up to like one milligram per kilogram. So um, about 100 grams of protein per day is basically what I would max out at. Um, you know, obviously it's individualized um, and you have to kind of see how you respond based on what you're consuming. But um, I think short term, you probably benefit from weight loss or fat loss. Um, Long term, though, I think you might have some negative effects um, from mTOR and and, um, cellular kind of degradation. Um, You know, I think I'm, I'm open to doing experiments. So anything for 30 days, I think is reasonable. Um, but long-term wise, I don't think there's enough data out there really to, to see, right. uh, what the negative or positive side effects are going to be. So maybe the guys who are doing it can, um, do some studies and publish some data. That'd be great. Well, I'm definitely in agreement that you don't need near as much protein, especially once you're adapted as, you know, it's historically, mm-hmm thought uh from a muscle building perspective i mean right now i'm in the full off season i think i'm at about 110 grams a day which is you know a third of what some of my other competitors are consuming right now right and part of that also has to be has to do with the fact that you know uh being keto adapted you actually have muscle sparing benefits from it so Mm -hmm. anybody who who is especially in the let's say bodybuilding phase where you know at some point you guys are trying to drop weight and get cut well, if you do that via like a calorie restricted diet, you actually um, are using your own muscle mass as fuel source, right? So the body is very, very adapted at um, saving itself. And so if most people who do like a, um, a diet, um, inevitably most diets are going to be calorie restricted to some degree. Um, and so what happens is they'll lose their glycogen storage uh, in the muscles and liver. And along with that, they'll lose water, right? So they feel very virtuous. They've lost 10 pounds. The next thing that the body preferentially starts to catabolize is muscle mass. So you start breaking down your lean body mass as energy. Uh, When you're keto adapted, that doesn't happen. You go from whatever glycogen stores that you have, and then you're basically using your own fat stores, fatty acids to make ketones, and you spare your muscle. So you actually get quite a benefit from being keto adapted in that in that sense yeah i I agree completely um i mean i don't want to touch too much on my my cut but i mean i was down to 65 grams and was feeling better than i was you know ever before previously using a you know standard uh you know calorie restriction i was calorie restricted but it wasn't coming from uh, i mean i had a higher fat content still so my ketones were much more elevated and uh, i mean at 65 grams of protein i was still I had decreased strength a little bit over that four and a half month cut, but not near as significant as I had in the past. Um, so that was a added benefit for sure. Yeah, very interesting. With uh, with with regard to what you had mentioned about uh, amino acids, um, I know branched chain amino acids are a pretty popular supplement. I I read somewhere that glutamine can um, 
you know, used for recovery, but it can actually promote uh, cancer cell growth. Have you heard of that at all? Yeah, I have heard of it. Um, you know, again, when we start talking about studies like that, um, you have to be kind of cognizant of what type of studies they are. Um, so theoretic or not theoretically, but cancer cells will use glutamine for, um, growth. And so the question is, if you have excessive glutamine, are you going to have progressive tumor growth? Um, when you deplete the glutamine, um, you can actually, uh, get decreased in, um, cancer cell growth. You know, most of those studies, again, are not going to be in humans. They're going to be in uh, rats or mice. Um, I think if you are excessively doing anything, chances of you promoting, you know, cancer or other uh, metabolic diseases go up. Um, on the flip side of that, some people will actually use glutamine as a supplement in people who already have cancer, um, the role of which doesn't really make too much sense, but um, it's, it's interesting to know. Um, so what I usually say in terms of branch chain amino acids um, if you overdo it with them, you can actually get decreased insulin or excuse me, decreased growth hormone production. It can affect your thyroid. So I tend to stay away from branch chain amino acids. If I, if I'm going to do some supplementation, it'll be, you know, full spectrum of amino acids. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, what will be a good like supplement recommendation for that? Is there a, a good umbrella amino acid profile supplement out there currently? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. The the one of the issues about supplements in general um, is that they're not regulated. So um, any supplement, in, unless it's a pharmaceutical grade, um, there's some companies that do it, like Metagenics, which I really like. Um, you really don't know what's in the um, supplement themselves, and a lot of times they'll have fillers that, unfortunately, for somebody who's ketogenic, can actually kick them out of ketosis. Um, you know, quantum makes a pretty good one. Um, I try not to uh, promote different brands just because, um, I, I, I think that the focus should be on, um, getting what you need from nutrition, not from, um, supplementation. I completely agree. Yeah. And and sometimes what we'll see is that there's going to be a focus more so on, um, okay, meal replacements or, take a pill. And I think we need to get away from that mindset as a society. And I see this a lot in a hospital setting where, um, you know, patients have an issue and the, um, reaction immediately is take a pill. So I think what what would be more beneficial is for people to say, okay, how do I get the amino acids that I need from my nutrition, um, versus just taking a supplement? And I think you can do that quite well if you are consuming high-quality um, products. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think my my take on supplementation has completely shifted since going, you know, with keto-adapted uh, lifestyle. Like, I, it's been cut dramatically. Um, when I ask about supplements, it's basically simply from a competitive bodybuilding standpoint of what can I do to get that edge on in addition to nutrition Um but yeah, I agree that the diet and nutrition should be the the base, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, there are some you know benefits if you're really looking strictly at uh, 
you know, maximizing your performance. Um, you know, valine is a um, type of amino acid that is quite beneficial. Um, arginine will increase your nitric oxide uh, synthesis, which nitric oxide is basically a vasodilator. It's what Viagra is. Um, but it also affects all your other um, uh, blood um, uh, cells and, and uh, blood vessels. So you can get increased blood flow to the muscles. It'll help with exercise capacity. Um, arginine can actually increase your exercise performance and capacity as well. So there are some benefits, but a lot of these you can get from your nutrition, which I think is is really what the focus should be. I agree. Um, what what about uh, like creatine? For instance, you get creatine in, in red meat um, and you know some mm -hmm. fish. I've heard that uh, to really tap into the benefits of creatine from a hypertrophy standpoint, you would need mm -hmm. to get more, uh, you know, higher concentrated amount than you would be able to find in just your food alone unless you were to eat, you know, copious amounts of steaks every day. Is that right. true or to what, what threshold uh, is it with creatine where you really start tapping into those benefits? Yeah, and exactly. You really have to pump the amount of creatinine or creatine that you consume almost to the point where it's got to be like up to five grams, which is quite a bit of uh, creatine. Um, you know, I think depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So most individuals, um, kind of weekend warriors or, you know, people who are kind of middle age do not need to do creatine. Um, if you are trying to really significantly improve your muscle performance, you know, bodybuilding, powerlifting, um, then yeah, obviously it'll help. Um, again, I think you have to make sure that you do it in, in the context of, um, your, optimize nutrition and exercise right so it'll maybe give you that one percentage um, extra boost which if you're competitive um, can obviously make dramatic uh, amount of difference uh, i would say most people don't need to take it um, you know there are some potential side effects some negative consequences um, and you have to take a lot more than what most people are are thinking um, is is necessary. Yeah. So well. no, that's good. It's good. Good answer. Um, I'm kind of skipping around here a little bit, but sure, I, I'd love to. Uh, you'd mentioned that prior to keto, you were you were vegan, vegetarian. Mm -hmm. What um, like what were some of the biomarkers, or what did you what did you notice about yourself uh, that led to switch into keto like what because i know sure. some people are, are vegan and they're, they're trying to do a ketogenic uh variation of vegan um i mean where where do you benefit from going more towards the saturated fats over the vegan and, and kind of just compare and contrast those two if you don't mind sure absolutely so i think most people go vegetarian or vegan for one of two reasons one is either uh like an ethical um constraint so they don't like how the animals are treated or it's just an ethical thing that I don't want to consume animal products because of the negative effects on um, the environment, et cetera. The other is, um, more of like a holistic it's, it sounds healthier, right? What could be wrong? What could be unhealthy about consuming vegetables, juices, 
fruits, right? I mean, theoretically, it sounds like it, it's going to be the healthiest um, kind of lifestyle you can have. Right. A couple, uh, a couple things happen though. So most, let's say you're eating a Western diet and you know mostly refined carbohydrates, fast food, and you convert over to vegetarian or veganism, you're going to feel a lot better. You're going to lose weight. Um, and at some point though, what happens is, and it's usually about a year into it, you start feeling a lot worse than you did before. You don't have the same thyroid production. Um, you stop losing weight. You start having, you know, issues with hair, nails, skin. Some, a lot of people will start getting rashes. Um, and what's happened is really you've depleted your micronutrient concentration because uh, vegetarian, veganism, you're not going to have the type of healthy fats that you need. A lot of um, the fats that are uh, obtained from those diets or lifestyles are going to be from soy-based products. And soy is probably one of the most negative products you can consume. Um, soy initially um, is, is highly used by Japanese. And so the idea is that, well, if the Japanese eat it and they have long like longevities, then it's got to be healthy. But the reality is that the soy that we consume is completely different than what they consume. It's a GMO uh, modified product. It's a um, estrogen, basically estrogenic um, compound. So it stimulates or it mimics estrogen. So mm -hmm. for men, you get decreased testosterone production. It affects your thyroid. Um, the other thing too is you you don't get absorption of uh, vitamins that you need, which are fat soluble. So vitamin A, D, E you don't get those so you get deficiencies so at some point most people will start feeling pretty poorly um when you go on a ketogenic lifestyle if you do it right which is maximizing healthy fats um and maximizing the micronutrients that you're consuming and i keep coming back to this because i think it's very important as keto becomes more mainstream which it really is there's a lot of misinformation, and so anybody who's just removing carbohydrates is saying, I'm keto, and that's not true. So it's very important to understand that when you're going ketogenic, you want to do it in the most organic, healthy way possible by maximizing the healthy fats that you're consuming, not hydrogenated oils, not you know fake cheeses, um, and then you also want to maximize the micronutrients that you're consuming so that you do not get depletion of those essential vitamins and micronutrients. Um, so from my personal experience, you know, I, like I said, I mean, it wasn't a body image. Um, I was exercising, but I noticed that my exercise performance was decreasing. You know, I was fatiguing more. I didn't have the same power output and I wasn't that old to use that as my excuse. I figured, well, I'm in, you know, medical residency or medical school. I'm exhausted. That's why. Um, and it turns out that that was completely the opposite. In terms of uh, markers, um, there's a lot of markers you can look at. Probably the, the best ones are going to be insulin level. Um, so most primary care doctors, when you go there, they're going to check a hemoglobin A1C, which is a kind of three-week uh, average of your glucose level in your blood. That's okay, but it's not going to really um, catch early onset of insulin resistance. The be better test for that is the insulin level, um, and mine was elevated, um, and which 
I would think based on my exercise and my nutrition, it should be low, but it wasn't. The other thing that um, is pretty telling is a high res CRP. So high sensitive CRP is a marker of inflammation in the body. Uh, it's not specific. So it just tells you that there's inflammation. It doesn't tell you where that inflammation is coming from. Mm-hmm. But mine was elevated. And again, the question is, what was that from? I think part of it was from overdoing exercise. Part of it was I was working nights um, based on you know medical residency, and so I had you know quite a bit of inflammation. But a big part of it was also the nutrition uh, component. Um, and then my um, cholesterol LDL profile was uh, out of whack, and um, you know that's a huge topic. So I think you know we might have to talk about it at a different time, but. Just basically, um, you know, my LDL was elevated, um, but more importantly, my type of LDL was not in the in the way that I wanted, and my triglycerides were high. And for listeners, the triglyceride really is a representation of sugar intake. So triglycerides, basically, if you consume glucose, fructose, um, the body converts those into triglycerides for um, transportation and storage. So if you have high triglycerides, it's not that you're eating too much fat, it's that you're eating too much refined carbohydrates. Very interesting. Yeah, so taking all those things into account, and on top of it, the way I felt, I mean, it was definitely pretty evident that um, there was something, you know, not right with what I was doing. Yeah, no, that's that's good. There's a... I have I have several clients now that that have gotten their blood work done recently, and I've I've gotten my blood work done. Um, I think I texted you about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but oh. I think a lot of people's um, idea on cholesterol is skewed because they're looking through the lens of of what's normal on a standard diet instead of how things change and shift as you go keto. So, having a higher LDL is not necessarily indicative of something wrong, uh, especially if you're keto adapted. So, could you? kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. And it's a pretty frequent question that I think there's a lot of confusion out there on. Um, So, you know, we have been taught LDL is a bad cholesterol and HDL is a good cholesterol. Um, Unfortunately, that is not necessarily true. And part of what happens is um, there's different types of LDLs. And the most common are going to be ApoB and ApoA. and so and what happens is when you consume a ketogenic diet, you develop these uh, increased LDL uh, markers, but they're what we call fluffy clouds. So if you think of it uh, kind of in a picture uh, format, you get these big fluffy uh, LDL particles um, that are derived from the fat that we consume. These are not metabolically active. They go down in your blood vessels, you know, they do not cause any damage to the endothelial cells. Um, your body needs cholesterol um, in order to uh, do all the functions that you need. So uh, cholesterol is very important for um, hormone production, testosterone production, uh, thyroid production. It's very important for all the cells in your body because the, the outlying of all the cells is fat um, and cholesterol. When you consume refined carbohydrates, you um, make very, they're called the small particle LDLs. So they're very, very small. 
um, and they're jagged. And what they do is when they go in your blood vessels, they actually do damage to the endothelial. And the endothelial cells are the cells that line the blood vessels. And so that starts a cascade where you get inflammation, you get macrophages that come, and you form plaques. So what happens when you start a ketogenic lifestyle is that you start consuming higher qualities of fat, and from that, your LDL can go up. But if you're just looking at LDL, which a standard cholesterol test will do, it's only going to tell you that LDL is up. Well, that's fine, but I need to know what type of LDL particle. Is it the big fluffy ones that are not going to cause any um, symptoms or not cause any damage, or is it the small ones? Um, which are going to cause all the arthrosclerosis that we have and the cardiac disease. Uh, so I, when people tell me their LDLs, it doesn't really mean anything to me unless it's like, you know, over a thousand. Um, I, I want to know, number one, what is the HDL, what is the triglyceride, and then what is the ApoB to ApoA1 ratio? Because that, for, to me, is going to give me so much more information. Inevitably, what happens is, you know, a patient or a client starts a ketogenic lifestyle, then goes to see the regular doctor, they check a cholesterol panel, LDL is, you know, 250, and the, the doctor wants to put them on a statin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that, unfortunately, is something that we need to educate people on, that, number one, if you're having good types of LDL, that's good, you want that. Um, it's not going to cause cardiac disease, it's not going to cause stroke, it's not going to cause any of those issues. Um but it's, it's one of those things where for 50 years we've been told that fat is bad, right? So every commercial, every person you talk to, if you tell them that you're eating high fat, they're going to tell you. The initial reaction of pretty much anybody who is not versed in keto is going to say, oh, my God, you're going to kill yourself. Why are you doing this? Yeah. So I almost laugh because I find it so ironic that we've been telling people – for the last 50 years, do low fat, do high carb, obviously healthy grains, which is a misnomer. And based on that, we've had massive obesity, massive diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease is the highest it's ever been. And yet, if you tell something different, they're worried that you're going to, you know, kill yourself or have a heart attack. It just doesn't make sense. Like if something's not working, Let's try something else. Let's try something that obviously the research shows is working. It, um, it is pretty discouraging. Like I'll have somebody that, that feels and looks and performs better than they ever have had before, but then they'll get you know, a higher LDL reading, and they won't even be broken down for the, the type of LDL. They'll just be higher in general, and they're just trained to think based off of what they've been told through you know, years of you know, just the society, what the, what's telling them is, and they automatically assume the keto diet's not right for them. And it's just, it's just uh, very discouraging. Yeah. And on that note, you know, there is, um, so having said what I just said, you can get some elevation in those small LDL particles on a keto diet. So it is possible. And, um, usually it's going to be from a, um, fat source that is mostly dairy based. So some people, especially if they've had difficulty with obesity, insulin resistance, or prediabetes, um, are going to be much more sensitive to um, dairy. Um, and so that they can actually get an insulin response to that and um, get some of the negative type of LDL components. So if I see somebody who's uh, doing keto, 
Um, and yet their LDL goes, you know, pretty high. Triglycerides are, are higher than I would expect. And their ratio of the small particle is high. I will immediately say, okay, let's get off of the dairy component. Let's increase your fat uh, percentage from MCT or, you know, um, more of a monounsaturated uh, fat. And those numbers will normalize as well. So you have to Number one, understand kind of the biochemistry behind what's going on. But also, number two, you have to be adaptable um, with yourself, with clients to say, look, you know, there is no one size fits all treatment for this. We need to be adaptable and see how you specifically are responding to what we're what we're consuming. Right, right. So uh, good, good first step of it to remove uh, dairy. Now, what about butter? Having less lactase, is that going to be as much an issue? Not as much. Um, if if you really want to maximize um, the fat concentration but decrease the chance of insulin uh, production, you can do something like ghee. So mm -hmm. ghee is going to be basically the butter without the milk products. Um, some of the milk products like the casein, you can get an inflammatory response. Um, and so... You, if you're having those issues, you know, a lot of times people will go ketogenic, you drop that initial 20, 30 pounds, and then you stall. Part of the issue is probably the dairy component. And so in that setting, if you really want to maximize what you're doing, I would even remove the butter and go to something like ghee um, as an alternative. Remove like the heavy cream and do coconut uh, milk instead. So there's ways to kind of manipulate what you're doing, still have the benefit of the fat intake, but just change the type of fat. Uh, I'm a big proponent of uh, medium chain triglycerides, um, you know, MCTs, which are all the rave, um, <clears throat> because uh, your body handles them differently. So um, when you consume them, they're used for uh, fuel. Your body cannot um, turn those into fat stores. Um, and basically it also enhances... Uh, glucose absorption um, in your muscles, um, which is very, very important. So you're, you're improving the utilization of glucose, but you're also consuming a fat that is going to be used as energy and not stored as fat. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there's ways to kind of, uh, you know, make subtle changes in your routine. Um, I think part of the issue with a lot of people is that there's still this perception that it's a one size fits all. So change your ma uh, macronutrients to 80% fat, you know, 15% protein, 5% carbohydrate intake, and you're going to get results. Well, not necessarily, you know, there has to be some uh, fluctuation, some modification based on what your body kind of uh, metabolic profile is and what it's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm actually doing an experiment with Danny for the latter part of the, uh, this year, October, November, December. We're going to manipulate protein and fat ratios to see which kind of lends itself to, uh, you know, the greatest muscle growth with the least amount of uh, fat gain. Um, awesome. So I'm curious to see how that will work out. Speaking of which, I know you're kind of a, a big proponent for biohacking, um, mm -hmm. N equals one experiments, which we're all a fan of here. What's like, let me just kind of give you a rundown of this experiment currently, and you can kind of critique it if you would. Um, okay. So it's not a perfect experiment because we're not returning to baseline each month. Um, right. So it's kind of hard to gauge progress uh, independent 
of each other of each variable. But basically, um, for the first month, we're going to simply be increasing 500 calories. It's all going to become all going to come from a protein. Um, the next month is going to be 500 calories all from fat, and the third month is going to be 500 calories all from uh, or from a combination of the two. So. I'm going to be like my baseline baseline is about 2,500 calories. We're going to increase to 3,000. Okay. And then, you know, first month protein, second month fat, third month both. What would be um, some kind of good biomarkers? What, what can we do to, to reduce the, the standard of error there? Yeah. Um, so let me just make sure I get this straight. So first month, it's just going to be increasing protein, 500 calories. And then the next month, you're going to remove that extra excess protein and just increase your fat? Yes. Is that right? Yes. I'm not going to go above 3,000. Okay. It's, and then the third month is going to be like half and half, half protein, half fat? Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, now, yeah. I, I know like ideally we would have enough time elapsed in between months that we could return to baseline, mm-hmm. you know, kind of recalculate our, our – uh, our energy expenditure, you know, needs and demands and kind of reevaluate that baseline. But I mean, we right. don't have, you know, six months per variation. So, um, what, and what, what is your end goal? Are you trying to increase muscle mass? Are you trying to increase, um, power output? Are you trying to not, decrease fat percentage or what is the uh, end point that you're looking at? My overarching goal is to figure out what would be the best protocol for basically a ketogenic off season. Um, so from a, a building hypertrophy standpoint, I want to have, you know, minimal fat gain, but mostly maximize muscle growth, uh, not even so much strength, just pure muscle growth. Um, okay. so I, cause I'm, I mean, obviously it's going to be different for every, every individual, but from a right. selfish standpoint, I want to figure out what ratio I should increase more during my off season months, you know, prior to a competition to really maximize, you know, looking better and bigger on stage the next time I compete. Right. Okay. So, I mean, there's a couple ways that you could go about trying to find the answer to that question. Um, you know, probably the best scientific one is going to be a combination of subjective and objective data points. So subjectively, like, um, you know, how do, how does he feel in terms or how do you feel in terms of your power output? Um, you know, in terms of your ability to recover. Uh, objectively, I would do more of a kind of power output. So you could do um, any number of kind of exercises which measures power output. Probably the best is going to be like a row, uh, you know, like a stationary row machine and see when you start, like have a baseline of what kind of power output he can do in a maximal effort. So basically get on a seated row, get at the highest resistance that you can have and do like a burst of 30 seconds. This is the, the max power output that I can pursue, uh, perform and then repeat that every month down the road. Second thing that you could look at would be um, your growth hormone production, which is really what you're trying to accomplish. I think is increase growth hormone production, maintain your testosterone production, and based on that, you're going to increase your muscle mass. Um, you know, really the, the kind of way to check that would be an IGF-1 level. Um, there are some variabilities on that, but that would tell you, you know, are you suppressing your growth hormone? Are you activating your growth hormone? Um, I would measure testosterone as well as a baseline and see because 
um, you can have some uh, variability in the testosterone levels um, based on your nutritional intake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would also um, check, you know, insulin level. Um, all those, obviously, you have to do blood tests. Um, I would also check your test or your thyroid production, your TSH, free T4, free T3, um, to make sure that you're optimizing your thyroid function, which is going to help in increasing muscle mass. All those you need blood tests for. Um, a way to kind of do a inference would be doing either a continuous glucose monitor, which now most you know most people don't want to use that. Um, but you could also just be tracking your glucose a little bit closely, um, especially after a um, exercise session. So get your baseline glucose level every morning um, before your training session, and then after your training session, see what the response is. If it's significantly elevated post exercise, then chances are your growth hormone production is going to be low, your testosterone production is going to be affected. And so that you can kind of infer based on that level if what you're doing is working or detrimental. So um, ideally, my glucose would be low after low workout, workout, and that would indicate a higher uh, growth hormone. Yeah, I mean, basically, what it's going to um, indicate is a lower insulin level, which is going to, in turn, also likely. Uh, and this is just an inference; so you don't know this hundred percent for sure, but it's likely going to have a lower um, uh, insulin level. And so from that you have lower cortisol, lower stress hormones, and you should have higher growth hormone from that. Um, but it's just an inference. So you, you know, it's not a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. When you get into biohacking, there's so many different, uh, and get expensive with all the different tests that you can run. Yeah. And that's one of the issues, um, with biohacking at this point is that, when I look at biohacking, um, I look at it a little bit differently. You know, it's it's cool. It's it's a little bit sexier to have these fancy tools that people are, are promoting, you know, from light therapy to biomodulation to, like, UV sauna. I mean, there's a lot of definitely cool technology that's out there that you can use to improve your health performance, exercise performance. Obviously, if you are... A professional athlete, money is uh, irrelevant. You can, you know, use it to maximize your benefit. If you have like 0.5% improvement at that level, that's going to be the difference between winning and losing. When I look at biohacking, what I look at for my clients beyond just the fancy tools is much simpler methods of checking and much simpler methods like um, yoga, meditation, stress reduction, you know, light therapy, which is not expensive, um, blue light blocking glasses, which are not expensive, um, gratuity, which is free, right? So there's a lot of things that you can do within the biohacking spectrum. Nutrition is, is so without nutrition, the right type of nutrition, biohacking is irrelevant in my opinion. You know, you can do all these other fancy things, eat McDonald's, and you're not going to get any benefit from the biohacking stuff. So I look at it as nutrition as the baseline, and then from that, how do we maximize the nutrition that we're consuming by addressing all these other components like sleep, like light, like stress, to decrease your stress hormones, decrease your sympathetic nervous system, 
and maximize the effects of being in ketosis. And um, so that's, I think, a better way to really look at biohacking, in my opinion. Well, sleep sleep is huge. Um, what what are what are some of your hacks for increasing sleep? I've I've noticed personally that I, I tend to need less sleep on keto. Like six hours on keto to me is I feel more rested than eight hours with carbs. Right. Um, but what are some some methods to uh, kind of trigger the body to fall asleep, stay asleep, and get a better quality of sleep? Right. It's a great question. Um, so it's important to first look at sleep and know that there's different types of sleep. So um, there's many different types, but the most important ones are going to be deep sleep and REM sleep. So REM, rapid eye movement, is when you're dreaming, essentially. The deep sleep is really when you get the recovery that you want. So you get the increased growth hormone production. um, You get the um, decreased sympathetic nervous system activation. That's really when you're getting the maximal benefits and, and healing, right? Um, in order to really know, though, you have to kind of know when you're in that sleep pattern. And there are some um, tools out there. I use an Aura Ring, um, which helps me track it. And um, I can tell you that my sleep pattern is very poor. And that's, I think, from um, many years, like 10 years of being up at night working, um, that's had a dramatic negative effect on my quality of sleep. So what do I do to try to help improve that sleep? There's a couple things. Um, so I uh, try to minimize my exposure to electronics at night. Um, so iPads, computers, TVs, um, they admit a ton of uh, light that can suppress melatonin production. Um, and melatonin is going to help you kind of get into that sleep that you need. Um, if you're going to use those products, then I would use like blue light blocking glasses, um, so that you diminish the exposure and you diminish the, uh, melatonin, uh, suppression. Um, other things, body temperature has a huge effect on, um, your ability to sleep and access those deep sleep levels that you want. Um, so either taking a really cold shower, dropping the temperature in your room, so that it's less than, you know, ideally 65 degrees, but for, if that's too cold, less than 70 degrees. Um, and then uh, timing of your food intake. So not eating at least three hours prior to sleep. When you consume food, um, that negatively impacts your ability to fall asleep. It also negatively impacts your growth hormone production, which is what you want at night as well. Um, so you definitely want to be careful. Don't eat late at night. Um, those are three things, obviously sleep hygiene. So you want it to be as dark as possible. Um, sometimes when I'm traveling, I'll even use those, um, kind of night, uh, shades, um, which, um, is kind of embarrassing, but it works. Um, you know, sound quality. So making sure that you really don't hear sound. Uh, and I think cause I travel quite a bit, um, that's when I tend to notice that my sleep, um, decreases tremendously. And so I'll use earplugs, um, and then, you know, uh, the nightshades to basically block out the light. Um, having a routine where you're basically doing the same thing every night, you know, for children, we have a routine for them. So they're adapted. They know what to expect. Same thing for your body, having a routine where you say, okay, I go to bed, essentially around the same time prior to that I do these certain things to kind of 
um, get myself ready to sleep is important. Um, and then doing something like, uh, yoga or meditation for 10 minutes before, you know, before you're about to go to bed will actually increase your parasympathetic nervous system, decrease your, um, sympathetic nervous system and help you sleep much better. So that's another powerful way to do it. Um, and then really with the biohacking component is don't try everything at once. Try one modality at a time and see how your body responds, I think is important. So um, that way you know what specifically works for you. Um, you know, because if you do all these different things at once, you have no idea what, which one is it that I, I'm getting benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I need to get better on my sleep as well. I think, uh, I think we I all know, do. I, I, yeah, definitely we all do. Um, I'm, I'm the world's worst about, you know, being on the computer working or something until the 19th hour and then I go to bed and then, it's, you know, right before I go to bed and I'm still looking at the, uh, the harmful light rays and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, when, just out of curiosity, like when I, when I compete and I'm at a really lean body, uh, fat percent, I don't know if it's because my, my synthetic nervous system is just on overdrive that last month of prep or, or what, but I'll, I would only average like three hours of sleep and it would not be a quality sleep. Um, is that, is that, uh, as the leaner you get, you tend to sleep less. Is there any correlation there? And that's a good question. Um, I would say that, uh, yeah, probably um, because dropping, you know, fat and trying to get cut to that degree that you need to on a stage, I think it's probably too much of a stressor on your body, um, you know, and to the point where you're activating your sympathetic nervous system, uh, which is making it harder for you to sleep. Uh, I'd have to really look into it specifically to answer your question, but just off the top of my head, I would say that that is most likely what's going on. You know, you're, it's too much of a overdrive on your sympathetic uh, nervous system. And so, um, that's going to negatively affect your sleep and definitely the quality of sleep that you're going to get as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I love the, I love just the intensity of how I feel with the synthetic nervous system on overdrive, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not sustainable. I think after that show, man, I I crashed for like 17 <laughs> hours straight. I bet. I bet. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, if you're doing it for a short period of time, um, then obviously you're going to get the benefit that you want that being cut and long-term effects are probably not going to be too bad. Um, but if you're chronically doing it, that's when it really becomes an issue where your body um, has a hard time, uh, you know, adapting to it, and you're gonna have the negative side effects, like you said, so like sleep, and um, you know, also you you probably notice that you're gonna get sick a little bit um, easier yeah. Yeah, than you know sure. what, um, and that's also because you're on sympathetic overdrive. Your immune system takes a hit. Exactly. And there's a way to quantify that, which, um, you know, by your HRV measurement, which I think is probably something we could talk about maybe on a different uh, episode. Um, but that's, a, that's also a really powerful heart rate variability is a really powerful tool that you can use to measure where you're at in terms of your sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and you can use that to kind of tailor what you're doing. Um, and uh, it's extremely powerful. Yeah, I've actually uh, I had that written down as one thing to ask you that and the the blood flow restriction training. There's a long list, man, but I know uh, 
we're <laughs> getting at it over an hour already. Um, yeah. Real, real quick question: Are, are your uh, heard your children in the background there? Are are they keto? Sorry about that. Yeah, um, yeah. So great question. So um, they are. I don't like to use the term keto with children um, because I think um, you know it's a it's a variation on what we're doing. They, you know, children obviously have different uh, energy outputs. They they need different nutrients because they're growing. Um, in order to not suppress growth hormone production, testosterone production in children, you definitely do not want to restrict their carbohydrate intake to the degree that you or I would. Um, so they are keto in the sense that they eat real uh, nutrition. So food that they eat is quite varied. They eat what we eat. Um, but like, for instance, I'll do a lot of um, intermittent fasting. So I'll do 24-hour fast, three- to five-day fast. I would never recommend you do that for a child. Um, but when they consume food, they consume you know healthy, quality food. So eggs, bacon, cheese, um, you know, in terms of carbohydrates, they're going to eat um, complex carbohydrates. So greeny vegetables, um, they do not eat refined sugars for the most part. Um, they do not eat refined carbohydrates. They do not eat hydrogenated oils. Um, so in that sense, yes, they are keto, um, but it's a modified version. Um, you know, kids being, being kids, we educate them, so we explain what we're doing. So it's not so much as, here, eat this because it's healthy for you and because I'm your parent and you need to do what I say. Mm -hmm. It's more, okay, this is why we're doing this. Um, and it's important to know that children are going to model themselves after what they see. So you have to preach or you have to practice what you preach. You have to do exactly what you're saying. If I tell a child, you know, don't drink alcohol. And meanwhile, I'm drinking two, three glasses of wine a day. They're going to call me out as, you know, a hypocrite. Same right. thing with nutrition. If I'm telling my child, you need to eat healthy uh, food and I'm eating fast food. Well, they're going to call me out on that. So we practice what we preach. We, um, incorporate them into what we're doing. So in terms of cooking, they help, we explain, um, I think it's also important to teach them kind of from the beginning to the end, the cycle of nutrition. So we'll go out to farms, show them how things are cultivated, you know, eat the food, food, talk about the benefits and then do composting so that they see there's, you know, a cycle of life. Um, and <clears throat> you know, in terms of if they go to a birthday party, which is a big issue, um, you know, we'll let them have something. Um, and inevitably they'll stop themselves. So they'll eat one, not feel good, you know, because they get the sugar crash um, and say, you know, I'm good. I don't want any more. Um, you know, it's not 100% perfect, but it's a, it's a work in progress is the way I like to look at it. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely um, trying to get them to the point where they understand um, why we're doing what we're doing. And it's working. Our seven-year-old, who's our eldest, is very, very aware of food. Our five-year-old is still getting there. The two-year-old, you know, will do whatever we tell them to, mm -hmm. or actually will do pretty much nothing we tell them to do. But um, so it's definitely, you know, a constant uh, battle. But my my um, thought on it, and I, I know I'm long-winded on this, um, so I apologize, but is 
what, what I notice in, in a hospital setting is that we used to see people in their 70s, 80s coming in with coronary artery disease, strokes, you know, diabetes, complications of that. And what I notice is that, especially in, in Mississippi, and obviously it's a little skewed because it's a very unhealthy state, but we would see people in their 30s with, um, you know, massive heart attacks or strokes mm -hmm. or on dialysis in their 30s. And it's pretty telling when you start seeing people who are younger than you um, having these end-stage diseases. And the question is, why? Um, and the reason is because, you know, our parents probably ate relatively okay for about 40 years of their life or 30 years. Um, so they had that head start. Nowadays, children are being fed. The average child gets 250 grams of refined carbohydrates a day. Yeah. That is the average. Uh, and so for 20 years of their life, they're getting this massive metabolic damage that may not show itself outwardly, right? It may not show itself in terms of obesity, but you know what we are noticing is that uh, girls are having puberty at a much lower age. It used to be 14, now it's nine. Why is that? Couple reasons. Number one, they have a threshold of weight gain. They need to be at least 100 pounds to get their puberty. So they're hitting that at a much um, uh, lower age. Secondly, a lot of the foods that they're consuming are estrogenetic. So the soy that I talked about, all the uh, antibiotics and hormones that are in the food source, that's causing these females to be more estrogenized, which is causing them to have their, their uh, period. So we are seeing it in those terms. Um, so I think it's very important that we start educating at the youngest age our children. Um, so I always tell you know, my clients that if you're doing this, don't do it for yourself. Do it for your whole family. Incorporate everybody because, number one, you're going to get a, a good support system. But number two, you're also going to prevent your children from having to see physicians like myself later on in life, which is really what you know, we're trying to accomplish is a healthier society at a younger age. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and I, I respect you immensely for that. I mean, on a macro level, you know, my motivation for keto is, is, you know, what can I do? What what value can I add to to share this with the most many, most people possible, um, and and take it from a, a lifestyle perspective as opposed to like a short term fix. And and it's sad to see, you know, in children who are relying solely on their parents and their guardians, you know, what foods to eat to see them just shuttled towards the, the path of, you know, early stage disease because that's just what's made available to them. I mean, like, it's depressing seeing, you know, elementary school lunches that are just, you know, French fries and, and processed meats that are cooked in vegetable oils. It's like, you know, I don't care what diet you're on. That's not healthy, you know. Exactly. And, and it's interesting because when I was growing up, I mean, I'm not that old. I talk like I'm old, but I'm 39. When I was growing up, there wasn't this uh, access to so much um, core nutrition. I mean, yeah, there was fast food, but in general, it wasn't like every meal was chock full of um, horrible products. Now, it's every meal that a child has has to have a dessert mm -hmm. or has to have a cookie or some sweet thing that back in the day was like, okay, maybe once a week you get a you know, dessert or something. But now it's it's inevitably the juice that they drink, or one of my biggest pet peeves is I see young children being fed Gatorade because they're, you know, playing soccer for 45 minutes. 
here's a newsflash. They don't need Gatorade. Okay. Yeah. No child, really nobody, unless you're uh, an elite performing athlete needs Gatorade. And yet it's a staple of everything. You know, granola bars are uh, touted as being healthy and they're not healthy. It's basically a sugar, sugar stick. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so even people who are trying to feed their children a healthy nutrition are missing the mark because what they think is healthy is actually not healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't looked, I don't have children, so I haven't looked at many of the, uh, the baby foods, but I remember, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of the baby foods uh, are just chock full of sugar, like not, not just fruit sugars, but just, you know, added sugars. Well, like, so one of the most important things you can do as a, as a mother when you have a child is to breastfeed, right? So some people can't do it for different reasons, and if they can't, then they use formula. So pretty much every formula out there is full of high fructose corn syrup or fructose base. And so we're setting these children up from the moment that they're born. What they do is if a baby is crying when they're born, they take a sugar solution, they dip like the um, pacifier in it, and they shove it in the baby's mouth. And so what we're doing is conditioning children from the onset that if you're upset, if you're cranky, here's a sugar solution that's going to calm you down. I see it, you know, repeatedly where parents will use uh, food as a reward system. You've been good. Here's a cookie. You've been good. We'll get your ice cream. Mm-hmm. You know, we, my wife and I, uh, and I'm very lucky because my wife um, also practices this 100%, and she's one of the ones who really pushes the healthy nutrition with our children and is uh, patient enough to deal with the responses. But, you know, we've, we've actually, you know, we've had issues where in the past we've used it as a um, kind of reward system and we were able to recognize that, hey, this is not a good idea what we're doing and we stopped it. It's a hard thing to do, especially for people who have children and know that, you know, you're going to get a response from them. They're going to give you a hard time. But children are very adaptable. So if you do something and you stick to it and for two weeks or so, you're going to basically kind of train them that, you know what, food is not a reward for you anymore. Um, you're going to eat healthy and uh, eventually they'll, they'll respond because they have no other choice. Um, and that goes for like eating healthy food too. One of the things that a lot of parents will tell me is how do you get your child to eat healthy? And my response to them is you got to stop feeding them unhealthy food. If you're constantly stimulating their brain receptors with highly refined carbohydrates and fats that are unhealthy, and then you try to feed them something that is quote unquote healthy, like a complex carbohydrate, they're not going to eat it. It's not that they're picky, it's that they've been conditioned by these food sources that are um, you know, designed to really kind of give you a psychological addiction. They're not going to be able to eat healthy foods because you know, physiologically and psychologically, they're adapted to eating just plain sugar. Yeah. And it's crazy how that psychological addiction carries through to mm-hmm. adulthood. You know, people will train for 30 minutes and then they, they think they've earned, uh, you know, a, a shake or something that's nothing but, you know, sugar. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a depressing, depressing uh, habitual movement that's not trending in any right direction whatsoever. And that's so important that you just mentioned that because... Um, 
if you think about it, we as a society exercise more than we ever have, right? I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and yet we're the sickest we've ever been. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not the exercise that's benefiting us, but like you said, you know, number one, we feel virtuous. Oh, I just ran 30 minutes. I earned myself this whatever, this bar, or like, you know, I've been running for 30 minutes, so I need a Gatorade to replenish my electrolytes. <laughs> no, you don't. You know, you don't need that. Um, and yet, inevitably, that's what people believe, and that's what marketing has told us, right? So yeah. you're inundated with commercials telling you to eat this the latest and greatest product. The reality is that you don't need it. I mean, if you're keto adapted, you do not need it. You need the electrolytes, sure, but you don't need that in the form of you know refined carbohydrates. And so, and the other thing too is that you know if you get on like a, a stationary bike or a treadmill, that is going to overestimate the number of calories you burn. Yeah. And Absolutely. so you think like, okay, I burn 400 calories, I can eat 400 calories. So number one, you've overestimated the number of calories that you burn. And then number two, calories are different. Not A calorie is not a calorie. So if you go out and you consume 400 calories of fat post-workout, that's going to have a different metabolic effect on your body versus if you go out and you consume 500 or 400 calories of plain sugar. Yes, so, I agree. And you know, most of those products that people are consuming post workout are just basically sugar dressed up in fancy, you know, uh, products. Yeah, and it's it's just unreal, man. Like, uh, <laughs> it's uh, mind boggling to me what what I used to think too was was healthy versus what I've learned now is healthy. I think the the society, especially American side, that we're just we're just ignorant, you know. It's not that we don't want to do the right thing. It's just that we simply don't know what the right thing is. And that's right. what's so cool about the keto community is that we're all genuinely trying to help each other reach that goal. And it's, it's a virtuous, like, genuine community, in my opinion. And I think the grassroots movement of it will be, you know, the distinguishing factor that makes this movement a lifestyle that helps others. So I agree. I think it's extremely powerful. I mean, I was very impressed with um, the people I met at KetoCon from, you know, people in the healthcare industry that are thinking outside the box to people like yourself who are looking at it for exercise performance and, you know, muscle mass to like your everyday person who's just trying to figure out outside of the kind of standard norm of what they've been told uh, how to improve their health, how to, how to feel better but also how to uh, improve their longevity. Um, and it's a, it's a very grassroots but um, community where I've noticed that everybody is willing to share the information, right, yeah. for, the, for the better good. It's not like I know this information, and because of that I'm not going to tell you. It, it's quite the opposite. It's Number one, uh, knowing the information is important. Knowing the right information is important. But that's only the first step, the, the real – real important thing is implementing it and then being adaptable where um, based on your response, you're open to making changes, you know, because it's not a one size fits all. People will have different responses to it. And, um, but yeah, the community itself I think is, is awesome. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely. Uh, well, well, Dr. Lomancy, I've, I've not even made it halfway through my question list here, so we're going to have to do a, a second podcast, but we're, we're already at an hour and a half, so I don't, know, I don't want to take too much of your time. That's okay. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
Absolutely. What, what uh, do you have any parting parting thoughts or anything? What, what can people go to find more about about you? Yeah. So um, I do a couple things. Uh, my website is johnlemanskymd.com. Um, I do one-on-one coaching with individuals um, using biohacking, but also a ketogenic lifestyle as a base. I have a program called the Keto Doctor Program where um, everything that we kind of talked about is incorporated into it. Meal plans, video messages, um, a private forum where you know you interact with me, um, ask your questions, etc. Um, and then I do virtual office hours. So if you want to ask me a question, all you got to do is sign up for virtual office hours, and it's free. And it's just a way to get more information out there for people who are curious but not willing to uh, commit right away. Um, and then yeah, I got a few things on the horizon. Um, in the process of writing a book. So that'll come out hopefully, um, in the next year or so. And, um, I'll be on a few speaking engagements, um, and hopefully back on your podcast to finish all the questions that we haven't addressed. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's very exciting for me to have, you know, connection with yourself being, you know, in the medical industry. Um, cause you, you bring a certain, uh, expertise to the table that is, is not common within the, the keto field because, it seems like traditional, you know, medical practitioners are so, uh, so slow to adopt and not near as open minded to this as a lifestyle. And it's exciting to see you, uh, counter that. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, speaking for the medical establishment, I think, um, people have to understand a couple of things. Number one, that we're not trained this way. We're trained to treat the diseases that we, uh, see, not prevent the diseases. And then number two, the focus for physicians going through training is to do a subspecialty where they're going to maximize the amount of money. Sorry, my son came in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so they're not trained that way, and, and they're going to go into subspecialties that are going to pay more. So we don't have enough primary care doctors. Um, they're overwhelmed, and they don't have time unfortunately, to talk. I mean, you and I have been talking about this for over an hour and a half, and we haven't delved into probably a fraction of the information that we would need to. Imagine a primary care doctor who has 15 minutes for an appointment. How is he going to really talk to you about this? So you have to kind of understand from, uh, from their perspective. It's not that they don't want to. It's that they can't. It's, the system is not set up for it that way. Mm-hmm. If, if I didn't spend, you know, the last 12 years, I mean, I read three books a week on the, on the subject, you know, if I wasn't making this my priority, um, then I wouldn't be up to date with the information. Um, but I feel that as a physician, I have a duty to really help people. Right. So our first, um, um, priority is to do no harm. And I feel like the best way to really not do harm to people, sorry about that, is, uh, <laughs> is um, by addressing issues before they are in stage. So addressing metabolic syndrome, addressing diabetes, addressing all the different types of chronic medical diseases that we experience before it gets to the point where they're hospitalized or are, are seeing the side effects of all the medications that they're taking, et cetera. So, I mean, it has to be really a lifestyle, and that's why I don't call it a diet. It's a lifestyle. This is not something that you're going to do short term. This is something that you're 
are going to use and make it part of your life to make sure that you maintain your health. It's like essential. Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting it from the, from the base up and as, as opposed mm-hmm. to a quick fix, short term solution. I mean, that is the name of the game without a doubt. Absolutely. Well, so, Dr. Lomansky, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. And I, I appreciate your time. And, uh, likewise. I would definitely love to do a follow up podcast because the, uh, the questions are still there for sure. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I'm excited to uh, talk to you again. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, Always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, hope your listeners got some good information out of this. I believe they will for sure. Absolutely. And got some good sound sound effects in the background. So, <laughs> and that's what makes it real, right? I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah. you've got children, and that's just part of it. Well, you know, part of it is that how do you incorporate keto in your lifestyle in the setting of, you know, children? I mean, you know, you have to – our lives are so difficult in the sense that, you know, we have jobs, we have to commute. We have bosses, we have family, we have in-laws, we have children. How do you incorporate this into that life? It's possible. I mean, it's real. It's possible. I have three little children. You know, I'm lucky. I'm a physician. I, you know, can make uh, an income. My wife is on board. She's a big proponent of this. You got to really, if you're going to do it, I think the best way to be successful is to do it as a family. Incorporate everybody into it. Um, I agree. And, and I think you'll have, you know, maximal success that way. And, so. and once you build those habits, I mean, they're there and it, it becomes just a day to day and it's not even, yeah. it's not even a difficult thing anymore, but people are unwilling to, to make that, you know, that initial sacrifice. Mm-hmm. They just want the quick fix. But I mean, once, once they can tap into the benefits of this lifestyle and really see how it's going to impact them in a positive way for years going forward, it's, it's that motivation should become more than the motivation it is to, to have that, that, uh, that quick little highlight, you know? Yeah. And I think two things, number one, part of it is people, um, have, uh, tried every other kind of quick fix fad diet out there and have had minimal success or no success. So they're wary all of a sudden keto, you know, it's been around for a long time, but all of a sudden keto now is becoming very trendy. Well, maybe it's another trendy fad diet that is not really going to work or it's dangerous or I talk to my doctor and they say it's dangerous or my friends say it's dangerous and you're telling me to eat fat when all I've heard all my life is fat is dangerous. So I I understand why people are uh, resistant to trying it. But what I would say is give it a real shot. Give it, you know, two months of really committing yourself to it. Find somebody who knows what they're talking about because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listen to podcasts of reputable people like yourself and, you know, give it a real shot and see how you feel. Check your markers. See what they look like. Are they improving? Are they not improving? Um, And then that way you can see this is real. And then once I think people have that experience, um, see the benefits. I mean, you don't need to sell this on people. They they see the benefits themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Well, Dr. Messi, I mean, if we don't, we're not careful, I'll just keep on talking for another 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so, and yeah. until next time, good sir, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. All righty. Sounds great.